seats. This is always such a great thing. I can never say it enough. When it's hard to get people back in their seats because they love talking to one another and greeting one another, even complete strangers, praise God, this is a great thing. This is a great problem to have. Amen? Amen. Hmm. So this evening, as we continue with our worship and our celebration and remembrance of Good Friday, uh, I want to go right back into the scripture and read uh, one of the uh, longer accounts in Matthew 27. Uh, In our society and in our world today, where entertainment has taken such a front stage Uh, and the idea of getting things that are bigger and better and more exciting and newer, okay? It's great to stop and to realize that with God, we don't need to get new. And so reading the account that's 2,000 years old is absolutely right on. To know that these words haven't diminished over 2,000 years. They didn't need to change. And we want to go right back and read the account uh, as it was put down 2,000 years ago. So here in Matthew 27, I'm beginning uh, in verse 11. And this is where Jesus is standing before Pontius Pilate. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor. And the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man. For I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, Crucify him! Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him! When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, His blood is on us! And on our children. 
Then he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. And from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection, went into the holy city, and appeared to many people. And when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Amen. 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 So important. We don't let these truths, these words pass from us.
And so as we read, as, as we've read this account and, and we reflect and we see so many events that had taken place on this road to Jesus' crucifixion, oh, what he endured. And I would say this to you tonight, that the goodness of Good Friday can be summed up like this. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. And I'm saying that from God's perspective. Whatever it takes to bring my people back to me. Whatever it takes to redeem my people that they could be with me in eternity. Whatever it takes. And we know exactly what it took. It took took the sacrifice of the one sinless life to bear all sin upon him, to become sin as the great offering for all of ours. Amen? 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the Spirit. In this narrative that we've read, we see Jesus, he's led outside the walls of the city of Jerusalem to be crucified in a most public place. He's stripped of his outer clothing and made to carry this heavy wooden crossbeam which will be mounted for his own execution. He has been severely beaten and weakened from blood loss such that this African pilgrim Simon of Cyrene is forced to carry the crossbeam for him all the way to the final resting place in Golgotha. According to Jewish tradition, Golgotha, the place of the skull, is the place that it is believed that Adam's skull has been buried beneath. This rocky hill, Golgotha, the place of the skull, and so if it is Adam's resting place, here we find the last Adam finding his resting place at the same location on that rocky hill. Cicero, the Roman rhetorician, explains this, that crucifixion is an extreme form of punishment and it deems it beneath the dignity of a Roman citizen to even use the word cross. The crux. Josephus, Jewish historian, would say that crucifixion was the most wretched of deaths. Oh yes, the Assyrians, the Persians, the Greeks, impaled as well. They used punishment in the same way, but it is said that the Romans excelled in it such that the victim found maximum pain, suffering, and shame. And so we find that Pontius Pilate had affixed a title unto Jesus' cross to identify his name and crime, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. 
we meet here tonight, brothers and sisters, to remember what Jesus has done. Focus our thoughts, our hearts, our minds on this reality that Jesus, the promised Messiah, has come. He has come and willingly gone to the cross. As the messianic king, Jesus is delivered up to be executed, to be crucified by what? The will of God cannot be lost on us. By the will of God for the sin of the world. For our sin. If you're visiting here tonight, I don't know if you've attended uh, last night, a Monday, Thursday, perhaps in your own church or here. And sometimes when we approach this Good Friday, there is this tendency where we know the way that the story unfolds. We know that in three days, Jesus rises from the dead in this triumphant victory over death. Right? Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, whatever you call it. And there might be this tendency that we kind of race through Good Friday because we want to say it's a victory and today isn't a somber day and we, we shouldn't be despairing by any means. Jesus is risen. We're just remembering the day in which he was crucified. But in this remembrance, we don't want to just brush through Good Friday. Because our sin is nailed in those hands of Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, but it doesn't take me long to think of my own sin. Whether it's hours, days, weeks. And some of you in this room maybe are bearing some heavy weights. Things in your past, things of the most recent future or the most recent time. We want to remember that if you have placed your faith in the blood of Jesus Christ, then that sin that you might not be able to get over is nailed to his hands. And if God has forgiven it, it is forgotten, brothers and sisters. Jesus pays with his entire life, he pays this debt in full. It is the finished work on the cross, not the partial work. Not such that you have to be a good person or that if you try to do enough ministry or you try to help enough people cross the road or you shake enough hands or you do good deeds that it's somehow going to earn your way into heaven. Jesus Christ finished the work on the cross, brothers and sisters. It's finished. When Jesus declares it is finished, his mission complete. Dying on the cross, fully God and fully man. A great cost. None of us could pay it. In fact, we must admit as we sit here tonight that it is something like this. We are helpless and lost in our sin. And the only way to bridge that chasm, the only way to find redemption, the only way to get to the other side is by sitting and watching helplessly as Jesus Christ laid down his life to make the road for you and me. 
You can't do anything about it. He was going. He was going there. You weren't going to stop him. And you weren't going to make him go either. He was going. But our sin was upon him. Our sin. Amen? And so what I want to do at this point, uh, we're not going to be here long tonight, but I want you to take a couple moments. I want you to bow your head at your seat, and I want you to just think. It won't be long. My mother did this with me when I was a little boy, and she wanted me to sit and think about what it was that Jesus did on that cross for me. And I'd sit in my room by myself, and I, I think we can all take a few moments here to really think about lost in sin, condemned to an eternity of hell, or free in the blood of Jesus Christ, that sacrifice that he made willingly for you and I. So would you bow your heads with me and take a few moments to think about what it is that Jesus has done. In John 3.16, we read, For God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. While hanging upon that cross, as was foretold in the book of Isaiah 800 years before Jesus, Jesus is despised, rejected, and mocked by the, by the very people he came to save. Darkness filled that sky from noon to three, and the holy, righteous fury of God's wrath was poured out against the sin that he was carrying. Our sin. Our sin that rested upon him. And the Lord Jesus cries out in that Soulful anguish as God's wrath 
against the sin of humanity is utterly satisfied. And so it is at this point of death, Jesus declares, it is finished. Jesus takes his breath The veil of the temple in the Holy of Holies is torn from top to bottom. The earth quakes and the most unlikely of people, a Roman centurion confesses, truly, this man was the son of God. The most unlikely. And although Jesus told his disciples on a number of occasions that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer, they didn't really get it. They didn't really understand. Despite the miracles performed, they didn't truly see what was happening. Despite the love that Jesus demonstrated, they hadn't really embraced what Jesus had done for them. And to put this in context, where do we go to really, to really grasp? We go back to Genesis. We go back to the beginning. And to Genesis 3, when sin enters the world. And Adam and Eve listened to the voice of the serpent rather than the voice of God. When sin and death entered the world. Catastrophe. And really, there's no other way to put it. Catastrophe entered the world, that creation itself was corrupted, that death was now a part of their existence, but God wasn't taken by surprise. God wasn't reeling back, oh, what do I do now? God had a plan from the very beginning. And he sets this plan into motion, and when the time was right, that very time that we celebrated on Christmas. The Savior, the Messiah, the Mashiach, was born into the world. This little baby. This little baby who would be the hope, the salvation for all. Amen? This one and only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. He came into the world for one purpose. Thousands of years of history in this meta-narrative that we have. Thousands of years in the history of the church. We go back to see for one purpose, he came back for you and for me. It is the ultimate rescue mission. It is, brothers and sisters. He came back for you. He wasn't going to allow you to be abandoned in the abyss of time In death and that place called hell, he came back for you and for me. I'll do whatever it takes to bring my people back. I'll do whatever I must to save my people from their sin against me. The most selfless move that God could have made made for us. I will reclaim them from their own blindness, their own deafness, from their own shame and misery. I'm not leaving you in deceit, in dishonor, in shame, in sorcery, in alcohol, drugs, lies, adultery, adultery, pride. I'm coming back for you. 
You will not be separated from me. I love you that much. I love you that much before you were in the womb. I love you before the world began. I knew who you were. I love you that much. I won't abandon you. I will never leave or forsake you. Oh, but wait a minute. So someone here might be saying, oh wait, Jesus is on the cross and doesn't he say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? Psalm 22. Hmm. I've printed it and I want to read some of it. This is a lament. There's no question. It begins as a lament. And Jesus is quoting My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. The lament. But as you read through Psalm 22, there's a progression. There's a transition. And what begins like someone saying, why have you cast me out so far and I am lost and you've left me for nothing? This psalm transitions to one of praise. It's a transition to one honoring and elevating God. And I'd like to read some of those verses that are at the end of that psalm after this transition has taken place. From you, verse 25, comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. He has done it. It is finished. He has done it. It is finished. Do you see? So those people who say this hypocrisy in the Bible and Jesus had given up hope, oh, that's not the case, brothers and sisters. Jesus knew exactly what was happening to him. And he trusted in his Father with full faith. Full faith. This is a victory psalm. Let there be no question. This is what Jesus is quoting. Whatever it takes... I'm coming back for you. Whatever it takes, I'm coming back for you. I'll not leave you where you are. I will not leave you alone and abandoned. I'm coming back for you. I won't leave you. I will go to that cross and make the way and the the path straight. This is Jesus' mission, fulfilled on the cross. It is finished taken the full weight of sin upon him, past, present, and future. You're worried about that sin that happens 15 years from now. Don't be worrying about that because Jesus already took it on that cross. 
You're worried about what happens if you die and you're in sin at that moment that you die. Don't you be worrying about that. Don't you be planning that, but don't you be worrying about that. It doesn't matter. Jesus took it. Have you trusted in the blood of Jesus more than you trust in yourself? Have you trusted in Jesus better than the plans you can make for yourself or your family or your children or everybody else around you? Trust in Jesus. Whatever it takes just to be with you. Just to be with you. As we sang in that song, I've done everything. I gave my life for you. Do you trust me? I gave my life. I'm going to ask the priest team to to come back up. He did everything just so you could spend eternity with him. And as we begin to look and transition from Good Friday, ultimately, on Sunday to Resurrection Sunday, there's a song we're going to sing, and you can sing it along with us. I'm going to sing about that glory appearing.